Hey, mate, Luke Ford here. Just a devastating article in the New York Times that came out, uh, I think, Sunday. Let me read uh, just a few excerpts from it before we get into a discussion here with Duvid. So, in Hasidic enclaves, failing private schools flush with private money. So, I'll just read the beginning from this New York Times article. New York's Hasidic Jewish religious schools have benefited from $1 billion in government funding in the last four years, but are unaccountable to outside oversight. So this article is by two reporters, Eliza Shapiro and Brian Rosenthal. Both sound obviously Jewish and photographer also sounds Jewish. So the Hasidic Jewish community has long operated one of New York's largest private schools on its own terms, resisting any outside scrutiny of how its students are faring. But in 2019, the school, the Central United Talmudical Academy, agreed to give state standardized tests in reading and math to more than 1,000 students. Every one of them failed. So we're talking students with an average IQ of around 110. So these are not unintelligent students, yet they receive so little reading and math education that every single one of them fail uh, state standardized tests in, in reading and math. So, uh, Duvid, what are, you, what are your reactions to this story? Well, the story's basically a hit piece. You know, so if you follow the Haredi news, um, you know, they knew it was coming. They were bracing for it. And the real news isn't the story. The news is the vote in New York City state regents and whether they're going to uh, enforce state standards on private schools in New York. And so actually it's not specifics to yeshiva, it's to uh, all private schools. So the legislation that New York regents are passing is not specifically uh, yeshivas. And this has been a big issue for decades and generally you know, it's it's one of the biggest, it's probably the single biggest issue for Hasidic voters in New York and Eric Adams. Like I mentioned, God forbid, uh, you know, counter-Semites hit me all the time. I've talked more than I want to talk about uh, Mitzitza Balpat. Uh, but, uh, you know, when Bloomberg had, uh, um, you made limitations and state requirements on Mitzitza Balpat regarding circumcisions, uh, de Blasio, one of his main running points was that uh, he would reverse Bloomberg's uh, regulation around the, that Jewish practice. And, you know, since that has been a non-issue, the main black vote issue for Hasidic Jews is not regulating yeshivas. So this New York Times article was purposely released the day before the, the vote, probably largely because it was known that the regions weren't going to pass it, and in somewhat like a defense against anti-Semitism, because uh, you know we turn back to like conservatism or, or you know, various political topics. Politically, there's a strategy, and calling someone anti-Semitic is a really good strategy. So you know, for Hasidic people who don't want their yeshivas to be regulated, the ac the accusation of being anti-Semitic is you know devastating for someone's political career. So in Albany or the state regents if they're going to vote on enforcing these religious standards and they're going to get called anti-Semitic, 
it, it could be devastating for their career. So like the New York Times and uh, you know, last week, uh, Steinhardt, uh, one of the wealthiest Jews uh, you know, from, uh, I think, the Seagrams. And uh, I mean, he's in New York, but you know, the family dynasty that uh, founded Birthright and donated huge amounts of money to Jewish charities, wrote an op-ed in the New York Post. And you know, for in terms of the strategy, I would say the main purpose of this post is to uh, allow the vote to pass without the regents being accused of anti-Semitism. So if you want to talk about the issue, you want to talk about what's going to happen, to some extent, it's going to be a non-issue in, in terms like it's bad for Jewish schools uh, because the legislation is changing and now they have the oversight before they didn't have any oversight. They didn't have to meet New York standards. So at this point, now they have to meet New York standards. They might still be able to fight it in court. They might still be able to get like an injunction. Lee Zeldin, who's running for governor, is specifically running for governor. This is one of his main issues, that he will reverse this. And even if it gets passed and everything, um, still it has to be enforced. And even the legislation as is, will be enforced by the local school board. So in terms of like, oh, is Haredi education going to change? Um, unlikely. So I said like the steps that would it take to actually change Haredi education, um, you know, it, it still has to be enforced by the local school board. And uh, generally, um, Jews, especially Haredi Jews, have a significant amount of power, at least in their local uh, jurisdictions. And Eric Adams, who uh, was universally endorsed by Orthodox Jews, like a handful of Orthodox Jews endorsed, endorsed Andrew Yang, but the vast majority of Orthodox Jews endorsed Eric Adams. And after Yang lost, all the people who endorsed Yang um, endorsed Adams. And Adams promised election that he would not touch yeshivas. So say that even if this legislation passed, it will have to be enforced by the New York City Department of Education, which is now under Adams, so it's unlikely that Adams would uh, you know do something. But yeah, I'm, I'm interested to talk about other the intersectionality of the politics, and you know Adams is probably going to want something in return. So like you know Eric Adams is likely to save the yeshivas, but he's certainly going to want something in return for doing it. Okay, so let me just uh, run through some some segments of the the articles. So this is just a stunning lead. So the Central United Talmudic Academy, right, gives a test in basic reading and math to more than one thousand students, and every one of them failed. So I, I don't know how ordinary people are going to read this and think, oh, this is no big deal. So you really think uh, people who, who read this article who aren't already committed uh, one way or another are going to read a, a statement like that, that every one of over a thousand students at this academy failed basic math and, and reading? You think they'll just uh, not care about it? Or do you think this will permanently change the, the way a lot of people think of uh, Hasidic education. Well, it's a known issue. So I, think, I don't think this well, article... Isn't it a known issue to who? It's a known issue to you, and it's a known issue to me. It's not a known issue to 98% of people in America. No, I mean, the New York Times publishes articles... This was on the front page of the New York Times. But I'm saying the New York Times publishes articles uh, critical of yeshivas in the education system regularly. 
if you think like you know these various organizations and i think we've talked about in the past like if you're a former hasidic jew and willing to say bad things about the community the new york times is basically going to make an article about you and like you know god forbid uh um what i i know like half of the people like god forbid that are like in these organizations and saying because uh you know so so i mean it's not new uh, which I mean, organizations I mean, you know half the people in which organizations footsteps yafid uh the the main organization i mean god forbid uh you know nick master uh naftali master like you know i remember like uh, you know like i remember him very well you know we went to the same synagogue like i knew his father and you know like i told him himself it's really his father that he's mad at um you know his his like he's like his father is the one that wanted him educated like that it wasn't the school that wronged him it wasn't the community that wronged him it was his own father that wanted wanted him to uh, be raised like that and you know, generally the the community it's the parents it's not like there's you know some tyrannical system that's that's uh, raising kids the way that their parents don't want them to be raised that uh, the yeshivas the parents feel that way that's why they send them to these places there's all types of yeshivas uh, of uh, different standards and uh, you know, we had this discussion last time i think it'd probably be more interesting to your viewership about the racial dynamics of new york so i mean you quote the one test uh, you know the of the one academy where they all failed um but generally yeshivas are on par with their local public schools like i said like you know like there's not many whites left in these areas i lived in borough park and generic whites there's basically none like anglos there's some polish most of the poles in in uh, brooklyn where i lived are, are real poles like they don't speak english they speak polish there's some italians um but it's mostly puerto ricans um some african americans and some chinese and the Hasidim are basically on par with their minority leaders. So, I mean, I, I, share, I shared with you quite a few links where you think, you know, do the Hispanics and Blacks perform better? So, you know, God forbid, like, you know, you, you follow the alt-right or various racial things. So it was interesting that Hasidic leadership were saying, well, well, the public schools cheat. Like, really, the reason our kids did poorer on these tests than the public school is because the public schools cheat and uh and and even saying like uh well, well they don't speak english but our neighbors don't speak english either and uh you know it's new york city like less than like half of people in new york city speak english as their first language and uh you know in borough park uh like probably less than 20 percent of the population speaks english as their first language and you know so who are these standards in comparison to and uh and, and the greater dog whistle that uh generally Hasidic Jews cost less money, put more money into the system than they take out because they pay uh um your property tax or for state for education and then they send their kids to public school. So the amount of state funding in New York, I mean the yeshivas they have it hooked up that they get a decent amount of funding, but it's about a billion dollars to over 30 billion dollars so statistically new york city spends significantly less money 
on Hasidic children than they do on other children. They gave numbers like you know your, your average African American that goes to New York City public schools gets spent $25,000 a year on. So, I mean, there's definitely a question about education and budgets, but to crack down on the Hasidim, um, I don't think there's that great like crackdown saying like the New York Times, I've been following the New York Times. Um, I lived in New York. The New York Times has been writing bad, negative press towards Hasidim for, for decades now. And the greater issue, that's why I said Eric Adams is going to save the yeshivas, uh, but you know, there's going to be a whole bunch of issues like you like saying, well, what does that say about uh, New York City public school and all the money that's being, uh, you know, used for uh, blacks and Hispanics and Chinese who. Uh, ironically, score better on tests than Casitum, and you're claiming that, oh, Casitum, you know, they're Ashkenazic Jews, they probably have an IQ of 110. Well, that may or may not be true. It could be that, you know, the IQ of Casitum is not as high. Maybe it is that high. Um, but, uh, you know, it's an interesting factor that you're claiming that these Jews are probably so smart. Um, but, uh, you know, according to the, you know, and that's why there's a focus. It's like, oh, it must be the parents who are doing something wrong because we know they're Jews and they have so much potential. And if we just freed them from being brought, brought up the way their parents want to raise them, then they would be able to do so much more. It's kind of racist because, you know, like, was it possible that uh, the Hasidim are, basically just as smart as blacks than you know or, or their hispanic neighbors I, uh, there i go there i get my volume back no there, there's no evidence that uh, latinos blacks and hasidic jews ashkenazi hasidic jews have, have the same iq so from all the evidence we're talking about an approximate uh, 15 to 25 point iq gap and but put in the politics here was saying no, there is evidence because blacks and Latinos score better on state tests than Casitum. That, so that's not evidence that for them are smarter. And if they're scoring worse on the test than blacks and Latinos in public schools, it's because their schools are messed up and they need to be freed from their own schools. Um, you because you're assuming that because they're Jews, they have higher IQs than the blacks and Latinos, but it would just go like, no, the state gave them tests and the blacks and Latinos scored better than them. Okay, so educational attainment is, does not rank 100% with IQ scores. The the correlation is about 0.3. So uh, school, school test results sometimes correlate with IQ scores and sometimes they don't. But let me get back to another point that you made. You said there's essentially no difference between these Hasidic test results and the test results of public schools around them, and that's ridiculous. Nobody out of these more than 1,000 Hasidic students passed the test. There's no secular equivalent of that. The, the public schools around them don't have a 0% test uh, pass uh, rate so the public schools around them will have anywhere from a thirty to a seventy percent uh, success rate in in passing these tests. So how on earth you come up with the idea that the test scores of these Hasidic academies are the same as public schools? That there's no evidence for that. Well, I looked at that, and that's one thing appears to be an anomaly, and that you know generally like the Hasidic girls schools score on par with public schools and that one test was like uh i don't call it like a surprise where they just gave them the test they didn't know they were going to take the test 
and they didn't prepare them for the test. So that black blacks and Latinos or your average New York public school student, they prepare them specifically for the test. They know the test they're going to take and they prepare them for the test. And according to, you know, conspiracy or criti critical people, they cheat. And so if you're saying the Hasidim all failed the test because, you know, they didn't prepare them for the test. They didn't really know what was going to go on the test. And they gave them the test and they all failed because they like they didn't know grammar. They didn't know this basic stuff as opposed to, you know, schools where 30 percent of, uh, you know, or, you know, of the similar economic category, because generally Hasidim are in the poor economic category where, you know, 30 to 60 percent of uh, their neighbors pass the test. But, uh, you know, those schools teach to the test. So they don't, you know, necessarily just give an education. They give an education knowing that this is going to be the test that the kids have to take as opposed to the Hasidic school where they just gave them that test and they didn't know what was going to be on it and they hadn't prepared them for it. And other schools where they did um, prepare them specifically for the test where Hasidic schools knew in advance that that was the test that they were going to be taken and were able to uh, prepare them for it uh, performed uh, on par with the the local public schools. Okay, I'll read a little more from this New York Times article. Students at nearly a dozen other schools run by the Hasidic community recorded similarly dismal outcomes that year. But where other schools might be struggling because of underfunding or mismanagement, these schools are different. They are failing by design. Leaders of New York's Hasidic community built scores of private schools to educate children in Jewish law, prayer, and tradition, and to wall them off from the secular world. So offering little English and math, virtually no science or history, they drill students relentlessly, sometimes brutally, during hours of religious lessons conducted in Yiddish. So this is another good point. These Hasidic schools are failing testing in reading and math by design. All right? They don't want their kids to be particularly skilled in, in math or in English because that would you know, open up the, the secular world to them. And so they want to keep their kids within the community. And so not doing well in English and math is a design of the Hasidic system to keep kids Hasidic. Do you think that's fair? Well, I might agree, but I mean, just theoretically, like the New York Times is just seething racism and saying, okay, like from the New York Times is basically saying, we know the blacks and Latinos do that poorly on the test because they're blacks and Latinos. If the Jews are doing that poor on the on those tests, and like we know we spend a ton of money, like New York City, they spend, I think they said close to $25,000 per child in public school. So I mean, you don't see the underlying race. I mean, you might agree with the underlining racism of the New York Times, where you're saying blacks and Latinos get those low test scores because they're blacks and Latinos. Hasidic Jews get those low test scores because they're being, uh, you know, unfairly treated by their own community. Uh, no, I don't think that's what the Times is saying. No, I don't think race has anything to do with it. They're pointing out that the Hasidic school system is designed to create students who are not competent in English and math. The the black, uh, the overwhelmingly black and Latino schools are not designed to create students who don't do well in math and English. This is part of the Hasidic design, which makes it 
unusual compared to other failing schools that this is built into the system and i asked you is that fair and you said yeah that is fair that is part of the hasidic uh, group strategy is that you raise our kids to be capable of successfully negotiating the outside world on their own you know mixing and living with the gentiles well yeah so saying that the the hasidic pur purposely don't want to teach their kids these required subjects as opposed to the public schools where that's the main purpose of the public schools is to teach them these subjects and and i think overall on average certainly with the hasidic girls school that the hasidic girls schools performed on par with new york city public schools of the same income group so you're saying that in, in even some of the boys schools depending on in, in uh performed on par so so there's two questions one is forcing the education so you know, there was the legalities of how the private schools got around the regulation beforehand they didn't like the regulation i think they call it like you basically some form of equivalence it was substantive equivalence that you don't have to do the state-backed curriculum as long as the kids have the equivalent outcome on basic skills which would include english and arithmetic so if there's a level to say like i don't want to have to teach my kid english and arithmetic you know like you know ilan omar or something like that i'm just as american as you even if i don't speak english and uh you know saying that they they couldn't really get away with that that wasn't the law so they had to show that they had an equivalence and so the equivalents mean that uh, they could educate their kids however they want as long as they had the basic equivalence results on the test scores and then you know it's going to come into uh you're really the racism where it, it's saying there's high expectations for jews so it's not necessarily like the Jews are wasting so much taxpayer money or the Jews are, are so much uh, more a drag on the welfare state or on educated that uh, you know, this is mostly a push from other Jews who uh, want to uh, prevent Hasidic Jews from living as they see fit and raising their kids as he, they see fit and interfering and saying like no this is america and we will stop you from raising your kids as you see fit because there's uh minimal standards and you know so the question is going to be largely the comparison to their neighbors and their neighbors are largely black and hispanic and then so you're going to come in there well the blacks and hispanics are doing better and and so you're going to have these interesting racial questions in that you know it can't be that the Jews aren't doing as good because we all know that Jews are smart and have high IQs. It can't be that the blacks and Hispanics are smarter than them. So it has to be that there's some sort of educational problem that requires the state to step in and uh, you'll start running their schools for them. Yeah, well, one interesting element to this story is that it's not non-Jews who, who are driving this crackdown on Hasidic schools. It is ex-Hasidim who feel like they were robbed uh, of the chance for a, for a normal life. So it, it's not uh, non-Jews, it, it's not uh, counter-Semites who, who are driving this. It's all those 
kids who were raised Hasidic and then chose to, to leave that world and, and realized how ill-equipped they were to make it in America. So how would you feel if you'd been raised in one of these Hasidic schools without the ability to be competent in math and English? And what kind of impact would, would that have had on your life? I would say that's inaccurate because like relatively it's the secular or modern Orthodox Jewish community and most of these people are put on the payroll. So, you know, these are Hasidic kids that are, you know, dropped out of the community and are given charity jobs, low middle-class incomes to be community activists and try to force uh, change upon the larger community, but they're paid to do it. And most of the money that they get to do it comes from, you know, the secular and modern Orthodox community that is purposely trying to recruit these kids. And, uh, you know, it's questionable how many there are. You're saying there's over 60,000 kids in the Hasidic school system. And, uh, um, you know, there's only a few hundred people in these organizations. And the reality is, is that any one of these Hasidic people could take their kid out of Hasidic school and send them to public school. If the public schools are that substantially better, um, they they pay like they have to. Uh, you know, saying every single one of those kids there is there because their parents wants them there. And you know, it's funny because like uh, you, you know, God forbid, I, I used to have problems with that guy Nick Master's father because he was kind of an extremist, and and so like it, it was his father that wanted to educate his son that way. The Hasidic community and schools did not wrong him. The Hasidic communities and schools educated him the way that his father wanted him to be educated. And had his father wanted to send him to public school, he could have had any of these people wanted to send him to this thing. We want to send him to Hasidic schools, but we want the Hasidic schools to teach these secular subjects. And it seems overwhelmingly that that's not the case, that there's some activists, and like I said, the majority of these activists are being paid by Jewish organizations, modern Orthodox, secular federation. And most of the Hasidim in Brooklyn, um, that's how they want to educate their kids. Okay, so you're you're saying there is no real movement of uh, people who are raised in these Hasidic schools to reform them, that this is astroturf, meaning that this is an artificial development that's funded by modern Orthodox Jews. But there's there's no evidence for that. You're just making something up. There, very few of these kids become modern Orthodox. Very few of these kids are subsidized into a modern Orthodox or a, a middle-class way of life. I mean, you just, you just made something up. You don't have any evidence that these kids are A, either modern Orthodox or B, the that uh, the majority of them are being subsidized by anti-Haredi activists? Well, not necessarily. I mean, the majority is from secular Jewish organizations, just a hand, handful. Generally, the modern Orthodox are more defensive of the yeshivas. But I would say you could look at uh, who funds these organizations, like Footsteps and Yafid, and they're funded by uh, the Federation, you know, like Steinhardt, who uh, wrote the op-ed, and, and secularists. And you say, like, no, I mean, the, the evidence is that the people that they quote in these articles are basically the same handful of people for decades now. And 
they're all on the payroll. And you could look at their no evidence of that. You have no evidence that all these kids are on the payroll. That's just something that you're making up. No, I'm saying you could go to their page, go to Yafid's page, and you can and see And every single staff. member of that organization is on the payroll. So hundreds of people, uh, their, their lifestyles are being underwritten by, you know, anti-Haredi forces. No, I mean, there, there, there is some element, but I mean, there's a few things, is that you could, there's a lot of various Jewish schools, there's a lot of public schools, any given parent could take their... No, you don't. There's no. You don't get. You don't forcefully get put into a private school. Right. The kids are not forced to go to a private school. Their parents give them a choice between going to a Hasidic school and going to a public school. Well, I mean, the parents usually don't give their kid a no, choice. No, the kids don't have any choice. By saying the parents have choice between multiple Jewish schools that have uh, different levels, so there's plenty of Jewish schools in English. So if a Hasidic person sends their kid to a Yiddish-speaking school, that is almost certainly because the parents want their kid going to a Yiddish-speaking school. If their parents wanted them to go to a school that speaks English and teaches more secular subjects, those schools exist, they could send them to them if they wanted to send them. Oh, of course, to... of course, but they, yeah, would no longer be be, they would no longer be members of the Hasidic community. So the, the point doesn't hold up. If Hasidim chose to send their kids to non-Hasidic schools, they would be shunned by their community. They would no longer effectively be Hasidim. So if you're going to be a Hasidic Jew, your only choice is to send your kids to a Hasidic school. Well, it's a voluntary community. It's America. You don't, I mean, they, you could pick up and move or you could be in the community, you could go to the plenty of people doing the numbers were overwhelming. They had the public comment by the Board of Regents. And they received like 350,000 comments. And there was only, uh, I think the numbers exist, there was only a few hundred comments from Hasidic student Hasidic parents that wanted their education to change. Oh, obviously, Hasidic parents aren't going to say anything different because they would be shunned by the community. I mean, by definition, Hasidic parent is someone who sends his kid to Hasidic schools and is not going to want to rock the boat. I mean, that that's just definitional. But what about the enormous damage that this does to the children who, who are being raised in this system? Do you, do you have any... Uh, empathy or sympathy for the kids who are being raised in America without the ability to be competent in English or math, let alone science and history. Yeah, I mean, we've spoken about this at length, and as a Balchuva or half-Jew um, who was trying to become more Hasidic, most of my friends were people from Hasidic backgrounds trying to become uh, less Hasidic, but I have more sympathy for Hasidim trying to protect their way of life and raise their kids as they see fit. And I think, like, relatively, um, I don't think it's that hard to leave the community. I know countless people that left the community that there's a regular flow of people leaving the community. Um, you know, almost all modern Orthodox Jews, uh, you know, even conservative Jews, uh, you know, my own, my own ancestors come from Orthodox Jews that became less religious, that secularized. And, you know, so so to say, like, uh, I don't want my kids to speak English. I want them to speak Yiddish as the first language. Um, and I don't want them to know all these secular things that I think that 
generally is overwhelmingly how these parents feel. They like their Yiddish Hasidic culture. They're not interested in American culture uh, and they don't want it forced upon them. And in terms of like, okay, they're being robbed of economic opportunity or of a life, a better life that they could have had is that you're really going to come in with the government and force that upon their kids. And I, I think that this article, the New York Times and these organizations are largely fraudulent. And I've seen that because uh, they recruit uh, like people who go off of Derek, these organizations recruit them and then will send them back to be activists against their own uh, community. I think that's generally, um, you know, America or a pretty common thing. And uh, so... I'm, I'm all for government intervention here because these Hasidic schools are effectively organized criminal enterprises because they're raising people who will not be able to earn an honest living. You graduate from one of these schools, what what, what, do you, what percentage of the kids who graduate from these schools do you think can earn an honest living and do earn an honest living? I'd say maybe 25% at most. So that means 75% are effectively thieves. I mean, God forbid, I'm saying like, I mean, that's, I mean, it's kind of like your classic anti-Semitism, but it's the way that uh, your large portion of the Jewish community of, of feels, but I say, no, I'd mean, say the majority of them could earn an honest living. And, uh, you know, I, I used to joke um, that, you know, like 770, where, where uh, Crown Heights is, is no organization has produced more life insurance agents than 770. And because the Lubavitch Rebbe himself endorsed the profession of life insurance and said that it was an honorable profession for Lubavitcher Hasid to be a life insurance agent. And, uh, you know, I, I knew countless, I don't know how many life insurance agents, you know, there in LA, but even here in Michigan, I know tens of Orthodox Jewish life insurance agents. In New York, when I day trade, I, like, I knew hundreds, like like New York Life, there's whole, uh, like had a whole floor of Orthodox Jews in the same building where I day trade. Yeah, but they weren't Orthodox Jews from a Hasidic background. Kids who can't pace, pass a basic math or uh, reading test are not going to become life insurance agents. So what you're just talking about is irrelevant to the graduates of these Hasidic schools. I mean, I, tra uh, I, mean I, I didn't go through with it, but uh, I went to the Agudas Yisrael. Agudas Israel is not Hasidic. I'm talking about Hasidic schools. You, you then... Uh, Israel represents is the blanket organization that represents all the yeshivas and they have training courses for life insurance life insurance you have to take um, I think it's only like 10 hours of courses and pass a test and I would say your average yeshiva graduate yes can become a life insurance agent they might have to learn some math and as someone who lived in Brooklyn I taught basic math to hundreds of Hasidim like I did basic math all the time, like on a daily basis, smart, even, you know, business people would ask me to do basic math for them. And a lot of them, it was embarrassing that they didn't know this stuff. And personally, like I would want my kids to know math, uh, but I, I would disagree. I think your average Hasidic kid could, uh, you know, with the education they had, could pull themselves together and pass the life insurance 
test and become and, and be an honest life insurance agent? I mean, you honestly think that uh, that your average Hasidic kid can't become an honest life insurance agent? Uh, first of all, I want to correct myself. Much of Agudat Yisrael is Hasidic, and if if a kid can't pass a basic English or or math test. As as this article describes, now I don't believe that they can become insurance agents. But uh, maybe I might have a few months of adult education. By saying like, yeah, with a few months of adult education, uh, and and like, no, I was in Bubov, and I mean, so you say all Bubovers are thieves, God forbid. Like, no, and we we you like I I said my joke that Joseph Cohn, who uh, you know was calling me out for, even even kind of liked and agreed, is say like I went to a special school where they teach you how to be a landlord, it's called yeshiva. And the fact is, in Bubov, uh lots of those people go into real estate accessory schools, uh, being a contractor. You could get a contractor's license. Uh, certain ones, you don't actually have to take a test. Uh, there's Hasidic things like appraisers, where you do actually have to... Uh, take a test in schooling, but there's uh, businesses of all Hasidim in Yiddish of appraisers, and you could apprentice under a Yiddish-speaking uh, appraiser, and you might even be able to have language like uh, on-time test because you speak English as a second language, uh, real estate agents. There's a whole bunch of professions, um, stockbrokers, uh, mortgage brokers. Uh, I mentioned to you on the stream of uh, um, the name slipping me, the man who uh, you know? Who opened up uh, a Meridian uh, brokerage? Orthodox Jew, who uh, God forbid, another Orthodox Jew took out a hitman to have him killed, but he blocked the bullet and took a bullet to his arm and healed. And he was, you know, Donald Trump's uh, mortgage broker, and he had almost all Orthodox Jews working for him, and they were all sorts, like they were modern Orthodox Balichuva, but he had a lot of Hasidim, and a lot of the Hasidim just had a basic. Hasidic education, and they were able to pull themselves together enough to become a mortgage broker. And, you know, then there's certain Jewish professions, uh, like diamond dealers, but just thinking like the middlemen of, of, of stuff like I did, finishing jobs and construction of, uh, you know, like uh, tile, wallpaper, carpeting, Orthodox Jews dominate but the, why do you keep conflating Orthodox Jews? We're talking here about people well, who Hasidic went to Hasidic Jews. Jews. I'm using the term, I meant Hasidic uh, Jews. Most Hasidic Orthodox Jews, Jews are not Hasidic. Dominate. Hasidic Jews dominate New York City, finishing contractor jobs, um, specifically because you don't need much of an education and you don't even need to take that much of a test to be an insured contractor that does tile, carpet, uh, um, wall paneling, and, 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 you know, the most thing, like I said, I went to a special school where they train you how to be a landlord. It's called yeshiva. And Hasidic Jews dominate New York real estate. And to some extent, you don't need a great secular education to buy a property and be a landlord. First of all, uh, many of these Hasidim that you're talking about are Lubavitchers who do get uh, much more of an, a general education than other forms of Hasidim. The Lubavitchers are raised to be able to interact with non-Jews, so very different from the other branches of Hasidim. I went to Bubov, and I remember in Bubov, they confiscated my books. I was in Bubov, and I had library books, 
um, not like happy courses, like books on psychology and philosophy, and they confiscated it. And I had a friend who begged me to take him to the library and take out books for him. And one day his father followed him and he confronted me and his son outside of the library. And he said, you never come here again. And, uh, and, uh, and this was in Bubba. And that's how they felt. And, uh, you know, they didn't allow, uh, the, you know, like, uh, you know, just library books, even something on basic psychology or philosophy or science in their school. Uh, but Bubba is basically a real estate training school. You were saying like most of the community, uh, you know, all sorts of business, import, export. Uh, you know, I went with Satmar people to, uh, you know, like uh, um, auctions, uh, repossession. Also, I remember, you know, God forbid, you know, first time I went to a repossession auction with the Satmar cousin, he's like, I buy everything. And, uh, you know, like closeouts, stuff that had been repossessed. And he was like, I buy everything. And and he did. He bought a lot in, in just, uh, you know, buying and selling and so there's different fields so like bubble uh i mean chabad i said like life insurance the rebbe endorsed life insurance there's life insurance agents all over the place but the rebbe actually endorsed the profession of life insurance real estate landlordship all hasidim are into landlordship in real estate but construction jobs satmer bubble um with very little english education um dominate these trades in new york so i'm, I'm not sure you're really saying you might it's like the dishonest are they you're you're saying their judaism makes them dishonest their lack of education um some of them might be dishonest uh but you're just saying from experience you could be an average Hasidic guy with very little secular education minimal english skills minimal math skills get a ball chuva like me to help you out and become a major contractor I don't know if you're muted. Ah, there we go. So let me read more from the New York Times article. So the result is that generations of children have been systematically denied a basic education, trapping many of them in a cycle of joblessness and dependency. So I would estimate the percentage of the graduates of these ascetic schools who can't pass a basic math or reading test that the percentage of them trapped in a cycle of dependency would uh, probably be something around 50%. But you would think it'd be much lower than that. No, I mean, I'd say if you make the dividing line Yiddish, if if they speak English as a second language, because the, like the reality is most Orthodox Jews don't speak Yiddish. If they, like in the yeshiva in Detroit, Almost no one speaks Yiddish in their home. In the upper level classes, the classes are in Yiddish, but the school's not in Yiddish. Besides, like when you get into school, you might learn Yiddish. Um, in Brooklyn, most Hasidic schools are completely in Yiddish. The people speak y English as a second language, and they have no to little formal training in English. So I would make the dividing line on English. If the school is a Jewish school, but it's in English, they're probably okay. They probably do better than the public schools. Like a, a typical Orthodox, you know, like uh, black hat Orthodox schools where the average you know, person shaves 
and uh, speaks English as their first language, their kids probably do better on the tests than yeah, the you're, you're slipping away from the, the topic of discussion. The topic of discussion is not orthodox education. It's Hasidic education. There aren't Hasidic schools in, in New York teaching in English. They teach in Yiddish, with the possible exception of uh, some Lubavitch schools. And so you, the question I asked you is the New York Times is noting that children who go through these Hasidic schools where education is in Yiddish, they get trapped in a cycle of joblessness and dependency. And I'm, I asserted to you that it would make sense to me that up to 50% of the boys who go to these Hasidic schools where instruction is in Yiddish do get trapped into cycles of joblessness and dependency. And so my question to you, which you didn't answer, was do you think 50% is an accurate figure? Or do you think it's substantially lower than that? Yeah, I think it's low. I, 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 I was trying to make the point that, that the main thing is English as a second language and wanting to... Uh, well, the topic is Hasidic schools where English is not taught. It's, it's the instructions in Yiddish. Yeah, so, so, but uh, I, I would say, no, I mean, the majority of Hasidic men eventually get a job, like 75%. And, you know, it's a tough world out there not having... Uh, education, even having an education, it's a tough world out there. Uh, New York has a big welfare state, Section 8, uh, you know, Medicare, food stamps, and various things. I told you, when, like my first job in Borough Park was getting food stamps for people. Uh, but no, I'd say eventually the majority, probably 75%, even more of Hasidic men eventually work. Uh, there are some people that live off of charity their whole life. Um, but uh, but no, I mean the Hasidic community is not designed for people to live off of charity their whole life, and most places like like Satmer, uh, you know, Bob Bells encourage people to get jobs, and usually there's big companies, so they might have lowly entrance jobs, uh, but to make eight ten dollars an hour, there's abundance of Hasidic owned businesses that hire Hasidic Jews that they could start on the bottom, and uh, the majority of them do. Okay, so back to this New York Times article. It says that uh, acidic neighborhoods have some of the highest poverty rates in New York City, which would seem to contradict what you're just saying. So do you think that the New York Times is wrong when it says that many of these acidic neighborhoods have the highest poverty rates in New York City? Um, well, no, they probably do. And saying like, because uh, it's hard to get ahead, it, you know, like as someone who doesn't know the dominant culture, who doesn't want to assimilate to the dominant culture, and because they have such large families. Um, but you know, if you're comparing them to, uh, you're really their neighbors who who are majority black and Hispanic. Uh, you're going to say that how much of a difference is there, in you know, saying. You know, why, why did the food stamps? You're saying like that you know, the area of relatively how many Jews are on government aid and government programs and the cost of the educational system versus blacks and Hispanics. And you know, relatively like financially that, uh, you know, the, although maybe percentage wise, there's certain Hasidic communities where there's a higher poverty rate or higher rate of people on certain government programs. But certainly the government 
spends more money on blacks and Hispanics. Okay, I think I'm going to uh, move on for today. Any final words, Duvid? Yeah, it's a hot issue. It's probably going to go on, and there's a lot of angles on it because I said that uh, um, this law that passed was not unique to just Hasidim. The New York Times focused on Hasidim, and the Hasidim were one of the biggest lobbying arms trying to stop the law from being passed. And that's why I said to some extent, the New York Times article serves as a defense to pass the law without being accused of anti-Semitism. We're saying we're not passing these laws because we want to end the Hasidic way of life, and they have a lot of Jews who support them. Uh, but in the actual political implication, like we you know, were talking like Republicans, most Hasidim are Democrats. They're like Their neighborhoods are Democrats, and it's related to the welfare state. And a lot of the arguments that the New York Times are making have overtones of racism to blacks that are assuming that you know the Jews, because either they're Jews or because they're white, have more potential than the blacks. And, and like had the Hasidim not been in their own system, that they you know certainly would have done much better uh, than their black neighbors. And so it gets lumped together with well, okay, you want to end welfare and government programs and handouts and letting these people live their own life as they see fit and uh, define what it means to be American, um, you know, because they're Hasidim, but are you going to say that about blacks and Hispanics? And so then you get the political coalition like Eric Adams, who, uh, you know, won mayorship with a coalition of votes, including the blacks. And so that's why I said that Eric Adams will likely save the Jews, but by saving the Jews, he will save the same welfare program and lack standards for blacks and even on uh, criminal reform. So it's just the nature of uh, big city uh, you know, democratic politics. And then also, if you want to talk about it more, the nature of assimilation, where you're saying like, well, the Hasidim, they're Jews, they're white, they could assimilate into whiteness as opposed to their black and Hispanic neighbors that couldn't assimilate into whiteness. And the some level of the Hasidic community, they know that. And they say, well, if our kids speak English, they're not going to want to be Jews anymore. And I, you know, you even had pictures today that, uh, you know, the Hasidim, you know, God forbid, saying that they would rather die than, uh, you know, give up their way of life. But that's kind of what they're saying is that they're Hasidim, they want to remain being Hasidim, and they would rather be poor, or, or God forbid, even to be martyred, than uh, give up their lifestyle. So it, it creates a whole bunch of interesting intersections. You like Lee Zeldin, uh, you know, uh, Republicans uh, coming in to defend the Hasidim that live in white areas from different angles. But ultimately, it's going to be the blacks that uh, will protect the Hasidim historically in these issues, because when it comes down to the defense of the welfare state and uh, money uh, in these government programs that, uh, uh, you know, so it's just interesting. I'm happy, you know, it's one of my favorite issues. So uh, blessings. Thanks for having me on to talk about it. Okay. Thanks, David. Great to talk to you. Okay. Let me go back to this New York times article. So yeah, I think this is a shun. I think this is a scandal. It says in the Gomorrah, the, the Talmud, that if you don't raise your, your son with a skill, you're raising a thief. 
And so these Hasidic schools that don't teach even basic levels of math and English are, are raising thieves. And so because these these school systems are effectively raising thieves, I'm starting to think of them as essentially organized criminal enterprises. And yeah, I do want uh, government intervention that uh, thousands of Hasidic children are denied a basic education. They're trapped in a pathetic and downward cycle of joblessness and dependency, and they're creating Hasidic neighborhoods with uh, about the highest poverty rates in, in New York City because these schools create students who are unprepared to navigate the world. And so who pays for this? Non-Jews pay for this, and Jews who work hard and, and pay taxes. So taxpayers are subsidizing this antisocial, dysfunctional education system of the Hasidim. And so the Hasidic boys' schools have collected more than $1 billion in the last four years from, from the government. And uh, New York City and New York State officials have avoided taking action because of the disciplined nature of Hasidic voting. And so Moshe Klein here says when he, he graduated from Hasidic schools, he realized he'd not been taught basic grammar. He'd not been taught the skills needed to find a decent job. He was 20 years old. He didn't know any higher order math. He never learned any science. So this New York Times article interviewed more than 275 people and provides a rare inside look at these schools that are keeping 50,000 boys from learning, you know, basic English, math, science, history schools, right? So these boys are not simply falling behind. They are suffering from levels of secular educational deprivation not seen anywhere else in New York City. So only nine schools in the state had less than 1% of their students testing at grade level in 2019. All of them were Hasidic boys, right? There's no other level of secular educational deprivation in New York that is comparable to what these Hasidic schools are doing. 80% of Hasidic girls who take these standardized tests fail, right? That is a higher percentage of failure than among blacks and Latinos. So the boys' schools cram secular studies in only after a full day of religious lessons, usually for only up to perhaps 90 minutes a day and only for children between the age of 8 and 12. These schools tend to discourage secular study at home. No English books whatsoever, one school's rule book warns. The English teachers tend not to be able to even speak English fluently. Many of them earn as little as $15 an hour. And uh, many of these kids get smacked around, kicked, you know, beaten. So at some schools, boys have called 911 to report being beaten. Hasidic leaders have opened more than 50 new boys' schools in the past decade, and they are very effective at tapping into government subsidies. So people who work are subsidizing this criminal and dysfunctional educational system. So the consequences of attending these schools tend to ripple out across time. Students grow up and can't support their own families. Many become addicted to drugs or alcohol. Those who remain in the system feel they have little choice but to send their children to the schools because you're not going to be able to be a Hasidic Jew and send your kids to any other type of school. 
So there are about 200,000 Hasidic Jews in New York. They make up about 10% of New York's Jewish population. So for many Hasidim, these schools are succeeding right, by placing religion at the center of daily life and secular education is viewed as distracting and leading to assimilation to Gentile norms. Now, many Hasidic parents know the limits of these schools, but they enroll their children there nonetheless because they want to maintain their status in the community. So the way these kids are crippled, uh, the best analogy for, for me are what used to happen to you know Chinese girls who would be raised with bound feet to make their feet really small, right? So these Hasidic boys in particular essentially you know raised with you know bound functioning skills right they are essentially crippled with with respect to earning an honest living so they're essentially raised to be thieves and welfare parasites let's have a look at the chat babs broke fees a real estate tycoon but babs was never acidic Sounds as if some people want to criminalize the Hasidic community because they want to continue their Hasidic lifestyle. No, it's if the community is acting dishonestly by taking you know, disproportionate amounts of, of welfare, uh, creating cultures of dependency and dysfunction. Woman needs to know how to make good holla. What else does she <laughs> need to know, says Glib Medley. Oy vey. God forbid Luke wants to tell Hasidim that they don't understand Judaism. Yeah, I will tell them that they are creating a culture of thieves. And they they will lean on certain traditions in the in Jewish history and I will lean on other traditions. So Jewish history, the Jewish tradition is very broad. There there are many different uh, strains of thought. So New York politicians tend to take a hands-off approach and, and allow these acidic schools that are essentially turning out moral cripples because they need their, they need their votes. But uh, we have a, a growing number of kids who are, who are raised in these schools who are now outraged and are leading the movement to enforce government regulations for minimum levels of education in English and math. Now, Lubavitch Hasidic schools are quite different, all right? So they encourage their followers to speak English. They are encouraged to develop skills for interacting with the wider world. So one... Uh, man who graduated from these schools, Hilly Rubin, is quoted, they could have education and still have their religion, but they don't, and the people are suffering. He said he tried to go to a community college. He could not keep up. He's now in debt. He's trying to stay afloat, and it's really inhumane. So when, in 2019, half of all New York students passed the test, 99% of the Hasidic boys who took the exams failed. And many of the schools did not even administer the tests. And so they can't even, many of these kids can't even, you know, write a proper English sentence. They, they didn't know how to spell. They, they didn't know how to 
add or divide or multiply. And also many of them just have the hell beaten out of them by, by teachers. And the trend is secular education in many Hasidic schools is getting worse. So many Hasidic boys yeshivas offer zero non-religious classes at all. Others make attending the classes optional. Hiam Fishman attended one of these schools. He said when he asked English teachers the meaning of words, they often said they did not know them. Most of my teachers barely knew the subjects, the secular subjects they were supposed to teach because they had the same education offered to us. He tried to learn English by secretly listening to the radio. After leaving yeshiva enrolled in public school, he was embarrassed by how little he knew. I was age 15, he says, I could barely speak English. Right, I wonder what Tucker Carlson has to Good say. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson's Time. Happy Monday. Yesterday marked the 21st anniversary of 9-11. That was, as you know, the single deadliest terror attack in all recorded history. If you're over 30, you did not need to be reminded. You remember it vividly. 9-11 changed America completely and changed it forever. Nothing has been the same here since, especially the relationship between Americans and their government. A decade ago, the New York Times admitted this. The Times marked the anniversary of 9-11 by publishing a piece on the rise of domestic surveillance abuses, which exploded after the 9-11 attacks. The Patriot Act, according to the New York Times, quote, quickly became a sort of shorthand for government abuse and overreaching, which, quote, inflicted collateral damage on political dissent, religious liberty, and the freedom of association, end quote. That is still true, in fact, truer than it's ever been, and it is still a tragedy. What's fascinating is that the New York Times has stopped acknowledging it. In fact, remarkably, there was not a single mention of the 9-11 anniversary on the front page of yesterday's paper, the paper that purports to represent New York, the epicenter of the 9-11 attacks. Now, why would the New York Times ignore 9-11? Well, good question. Because the New York Times and the tiny leadership class it panders to, and in fact represents, now wholeheartedly endorses the nationwide crackdown on civil liberties that 9-11 made possible. And why wouldn't they endorse it? They're benefiting from it. It's how they keep power. So for them, in retrospect, 9-11 was less a tragedy than it was an opportunity. And if you don't believe that, watch how Joe Biden, the president of the United States, commemorated that anniversary yesterday. It's not enough to gather and remember each September 11th, those we lost more than two decades ago. Because on this day, it is not about the past, it's about the future. We have an obligation, a duty, a responsibility to defend, preserve, and protect our democracy. It's not about the past, it's about the future. This was in a speech that was supposed to mark the anniversary of the deaths of thousands of Americans at the hands of foreign adversaries. So when Joe Biden speaks about the future, you should listen. The future of what? Don't focus on the dead. Focus on what I want to do. Okay. But what is it that Joe Biden wants to do? Fight Islamic terrorism? <laughs> no. Protect democracy. But what exactly is this democracy that Joe Biden speaks of? Why won't he define it ever? And how exactly is that democracy imperiled? These are pivotal questions. And that's a great point by Tucker. You'll notice whenever you hear lamentations in the news media by our leads about how democracy is in peril, they, they never bother 
to define democracy. So what they usually mean is our democratic institutions, particularly the ones that we control, are, are getting pushed back. But institutions are not the same as democracy. So looking at the chat, Duvid says, there will be a coalition in New York City between blacks, Jews, and Hispanics. The pressure on Hasidic schools is not coming from blacks and Hispanics, but mostly from secular Jews and whites from other neighborhoods. Well, the pressure is entirely driven by former Hasidic kids. It's not driven by non-Orthodox Jews who were raised uh, secular. It's from kids who went through the meat grinder of these schools. Uh, David says the key is the whites all left New York City. They, they didn't or leave New York City, the number of whites in New York City today are about the same as 50 years ago or 30 years ago or 100 years ago. It's just that there's been an influx of uh, non-whites, but there are, there are millions of white people still left in New York City. Duva says, if you want the government to enforce these rules for basic uh, education in private schools, you'll have black and Hispanic government officials overseeing Hasidic schools. Yes. The pressure on Hasidic schools is not coming from blacks and Hispanics, mostly secular Jews, whites from other neighborhoods. There will be a coalition within New York City between blacks, Jews, and Hispanics. So whites from outside of New York looks like they're trying to force minorities in New York City to be more white. So the Hasidim benefit from minority status. And this is another example of whites trying to take away government benefits from minorities in New York City. So the New York Times and Jewish advocates try to separate the issue to just Hasidic yeshivas. But Hasidic yeshivas deal with black and Hispanic community leaders for the win-win fighting whitey. So Luke and the New York Times represent whitey trying to come in and tell minorities the reason they are poor is their way of life, not racism. This is a win-win issue in New York City for Hasidim. Makes Hasidim look good to non-whites who don't want government interfering in the way they want to raise their kids. Just like Luke and the New York Times want to force kids to learn critical race theory. Where, where do I want to force kids to learn critical race theory? So Judas keeps talking about how his rabbi is very religious and is a licensed therapist and has a master's degree. I would suspect that your rabbi does not come from a non-Lubavitch Hasidic uh, education particularly in an insular place like New York City. John Wolf says, should the NYPD start to stop and frisk the young Hasidic men? No, they have very low rates of uh, violent crime. So you only want to stop and frisk those who are at very high odds of committing violent crime. How do failing Hasidic schools impact African-Americans? Well, they compete and often will outcompete African-Americans for welfare dollars. And uh, also African-Americans and Hasidim often share the same neighborhoods. So with, with dollars and with political influence often comes uh, policing. And so the more power and influence you have, the more you can shape a public policy and can shape uh, policing. Questions. And for answers, we're going to turn to the source. That would be Chuck Todd of NBC News, who in practice is a slightly more articulate version of Biden publicist Karine Jean-Pierre. If you want to know what the Biden administration is really thinking, listen to the guy with the comb over in the anchor chair at NBC. Here is his exchange with Kamala Harris, the sitting vice president, yesterday. 
Not quite 20 years after 9-11, the Capitol came under attack from domestic terrorists. I began by asking the Vice President about how, over two decades, our focus has had to shift from foreign terror to the threat from within. I think it is very Okay, that is an abominable comparison. Okay, 9-11 killed over 2,000 people. Right, only one person was murdered or, or deliberately killed on, on January 6th, and that was Ashley Babbitt. So that's that's an odious, odious comparison. It just in terms of, of lives, devastated, crippled, absolutely no comparison between 9-11 and January 6th. And just in general, to compare 9-11 with January 6th is absolutely absurd. Were there elements of terror? In what happened on January 6th? Yes. Were innocent people terrorized uh, on January 6th? Yes. But it was nothing, 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 nothing in the same ballpark uh, of sending planes, you know, into buildings, right? Absolutely no comparison between the level of terror uh, on 9-11 and, and the level of terror created uh, on January 6th. What a horrible comparison dangerous and I think it is very harmful and it makes us weaker. So you look at everything from the fact there are 11 people right now running for Secretary of State, the keepers of the integrity of the voting system of their state, who are election deniers. You've got... And what's that sending? Well, as Kamala Harris had uh, extensive plastic surgery, I mean, something's weird above her upper lip. What message does that send to the world? Well, you couple that with people who hold some of the highest elected offices in our country who who refuse to condemn an insurrection on January 6th. So you're slack-jawed watching something like this. Did I just see that? And I'm quoting. And the idea that the January 6th was an insurrection, it, it was a... a a riot got out of control. There was no concrete plan or even capability of seizing power. So it had nothing to do with an insurrection. I began by asking the vice president about how over two decades our focus has had to shift from foreign terror to the threat within. The threat within? What does that mean? What the hell are you talking about, you freaking lunatic? There is no group of Americans anywhere in the United States half as dangerous as the 9-11 hijackers. To suggest otherwise is literally insane. Drawing a parallel between the election justice protest of January 6th and the fall of the Twin Towers? True lunacy. But Kamala Harris didn't even pause, almost like the whole question was a setup. She just nodded. This unspecified internal threat, she confirmed, is in fact just like Al-Qaeda. Quote, very dangerous and very harmful. You may be wondering at this point, what is this threat? Since we've just declared a new war on terror, but against whom? Who is this threat? Well, of course, it's you and anyone else in the way of the Biden administration. And especially, as the vice president just said, and you saw it, anyone who questions the legitimacy of the last election. But wait a second, you ask, didn't Kamala Harris herself call the 2016 presidential election illegitimate? Your memory's not failing. Yes, she did. 
And so did every leader of the Democratic Party. And they will say the same to this day. And yet she is telling us, the sitting vice president, that anyone who questions the 2020 election should be in jail. Watch. What is a semi-fascist? Listen, I think that um, when we... Let's not get caught up in, 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 in politicizing the fact that most people in America know that it is not helpful to our country when we have people who are denying elections or trying to obstruct the outcome of an election where the largest number of people in our country voted for the president of the United States. And um, when we look at where we are, I think that we have to admit that there are um, attacks from within, to your first question, and we need to take it seriously. So again, that's the sitting vice president, who they tell us over and over, and you just heard her say it, received more votes than any vice president in history. And if you don't believe that, and there are reasons not to believe that, if you don't believe that, you're like Muhammad Atta. Your beliefs are acts of terror. You're comparable to a mass murderer, and you need to be pursued by law enforcement. They're saying that. She just said the greatest threat to our country is that Republicans might be elected to statewide office in 11 states. That's comparable to 9-11. Is no one noticing this? The Biden administration's message, and of course, as it always is, completely consistent across the board, on 9-11, on the anniversary of 9-11, was that any American who disapproves of Joe Biden's performance is a terrorist. Here's the DHS secretary, Mayorkas. The threat landscape has evolved considerably over the last 20 years. We are seeing an emerging threat, of course, over the last several years of the domestic violent extremists, the individual here in the United States radicalized to violence by a foreign terrorist ideology, but also an ideology of hate, anti-government sentiment, false narratives propagated on online platforms, even personal grievances. Is no one paying attention to this? Does no one see this happening? That's the DHS secretary saying that opinions he doesn't agree with expressed online, which most of us thought were constitutionally protected. In fact, we thought that was the whole reason we lived here. That's why this is a different nation from, say, Iran. But the fact that people have different political opinions, including about the last election. Stacey Abrams has spent the last five years saying she's the rightful governor of Georgia. We think she's a lunatic. We also believe that view is constitutionally protected. There's the DHS secretary saying, those people are Al-Qaeda. This is terrifying. And it's not just words. They're acting. And they're acting at scale. It was just a few weeks ago, on Thursday, September 1st, two months before the midterm elections, not an incidental fact, that Joe Biden declared his political opponents enemies of the state. You remember it. Here's a clip. Too much of what's happening in our country today is not normal. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. We're all called by duty and conscience to confront extremists who put their own pursuit of power above all else. Democrats, independents, mainstream Republicans, we must be stronger, more determined, and more committed to saving American democracy than MAGA Republicans are to destroying American democracy. So the upside of having a senile president is that no one takes him very seriously. And so it's possible for the rest of us to see something like that 
a declaration of war on an entire political party in a two-party system, which would leave this, if we were to follow his urging, a one-party state. It's very easy to dismiss that as the ramblings of a man who has no idea what he's saying. And a lot of people did. And yet, the very next day, the morning after Joe Biden delivered that speech, at 8.30 a.m., a woman called Lisa Gallagher was sick in bed at her home in suburban New Jersey. Her daughter came upstairs and told her that the FBI was waiting outside. Now, Lisa Gallagher is not a criminal, never has been. She is an active Trump supporter, particularly on Facebook. She had a Trump lawn on her flag. She's a patriotic American. She describes herself as a rule follower. She's never once been in trouble with the law at any level. And she had nothing whatsoever to do with January 6th. And yet outside her door were three FBI agents with guns. Quote, we got an anonymous tip. You were at the Capitol on January 6th. That's what they said. Gallagher was terrified. Quote, I thought they were going to take me out of here in handcuffs, she told the show this morning. Ultimately, her husband came home and the two of them showed the FBI agents her daily calendars from January of 2021 and finally convinced the agents that she was not at the Capitol that day. Imagine armed FBI agents showing up at your house because you supported Trump on Facebook and demanding records of your whereabouts on a date nearly two years ago. And of course, the FBI already knew that Lisa Gallagher was not there because they have sophisticated facial recognition software. So they were never planning to arrest her. The point, and this is a theme in every authoritarian regime, the point was to use government agents to intimidate enemies of the regime on the basis of an anonymous tip. Quote, I have never been so frightened in my life, Lisa Gallagher said. The rest of us should feel the same way. Snitches? Anonymous snitches? The secret police showing up at your door when you're in bed? This is Soviet, and there's no other word for it. But it's not just Lisa Gallagher. The same thing is happening to dozens, maybe scores, of other supporters of the former president. Amy Kremer, for example, is a former Tea Party member and a candidate for the House of Representatives. Okay, so this makes a, a pretty good case for Ring. Didn't they get the names of the FBI agents? Right, Their names and, and their photos should be publicized. All right, so people should have Ring, the the uh, software and hardware that enables you to keep uh, live streaming of anything going on outside your door. Anyone who comes to your door, you, you get a live stream recording of that. So it's a shame she doesn't have that to, to play. So people responsible for harassing someone, just as Tucker described, if that's a fair and accurate representation, they should be named and shamed. And so maybe we need, just like if you ever give an interview to a journalist, you should tape record it so that you have a record in case they want to distort it, in case they want to, you know, take a little segment here that is completely out of character with what else you're saying. So in a more hostile world, we have to take more and more precautions and the automatic deference that we give to law enforcement, we may need to rethink. We should not cease to be polite. You should be polite to anyone who has the capacity to hurt you, right? Even evil people, right? You should be very polite to evil people who have the capacity to hurt you. You should be very polite to anyone carrying weapons. You should be very polite to anyone who can ruin your life. But we also have to take steps to protect ourselves and I think getting getting a ring set up via Amazon so that we can record and have live streams of anyone who comes to our door, anyone who's hanging around and means us harm, 
right? We should have recordings of that. We should have uh, these agents' names, faces. We should publicize, name, and shame them. She also obtained special permits for the National Park Service, which authorized Donald Trump's rally on January 6th, 2021. To be perfectly clear, Amy Kramer never went to the Capitol on that day. She never encouraged anyone else to go either. But for the crime of organizing a lawful political event, an election justice rally. So Art Bell says, no Luke Ford show, which was 9-11. Tucker remembered to do a show. Donovan Wallen, too. YouTuber broadcasters, big and small. Luke ate Ricola bonbons washed out with crystal lights. So... I got up at uh, 4 a.m. on Sunday, and I read books solidly until 10 a.m., and then I watched a lot of football for most of the next uh, for most of the next nine hours. Now, the, the Dallas Cowboy game was a, a very painful disappointment, but it's important for me to stop doing shows, take time to just read books, make notes, reflect, pause, settle in uh, away from the camera, lead a life. Protected by the Constitution, Amy Kramer is now being terrorized by Merrick Garland's DOJ. On Wednesday morning, FBI agents showed up at her home, first at the home of her ex-husband, carrying a subpoena for her daughter, Kylie. Kramer received a call from Kylie's stepmother saying, quote, the FBI is here for her. The FBI's subpoena demands all communications from Amy Kramer and Kylie, including their social media posts. What? from October 1st, 2020 to the present day. Now, why would the FBI, Joe Biden's FBI, need Amy Kramer's daughter's Instagram posts? Because this isn't about the events leading up to January 6th. Obviously, it's about... So I, I obviously have a lot of sentiment for Tucker Carlson's sentiments. Right? I was a lot of sympathy for his sentiments. The problem is Tucker Carlson has a really bad track record for being unfair inaccurate, sloppy. So I have a very little faith that what he is sharing here is a fair, reasonable, and accurate compendium of the facts. So I appreciate his passion. It's a shame that his show is so reckless that that he, on a nightly basis, just practices in an absolute reckless disregard for the facts almost no consideration for, for fairness. And so he's not someone who has you know, credibility when it comes to fidelity to the truth, unfortunately. Mining all of her personal information. This is harassment on political grounds. It's illegal, it's unconstitutional, it shocks the conscience of everyone who sees it. But the number of people who see it is very small because it is not covered by any media. And it's not just happening to Amy Kramer. This show has obtained a subpoena from Merrick Garland's DOJ issued in the past week. And what is not covered by any media. So there's extensive, you know, right wing media and, and they do cover it. The problem is right wing media is so pathetic, right? The, the quality of the, the reporting compared to the left wing media of the New York Times or the New Yorker or New York Magazine, it just doesn't compete. So if if uh, the right is serious about Tucker Carlson's sentiments here, then they should put some money together and they should do some work and do some documenting and reporting. So if you know elections are stolen, then 
go report the facts and dig them up and do it in, in a reasonable manner, like compile evidence so that uh, people who don't have a dog in the race can look at what you're doing and go, oh, maybe maybe there's a good argument there. So, I mean, how is the right wing so pathetic that they can't develop you know, a solid news media? I mean, Mickey Kaus is right. Whenever he tries to read you know, these, these right wing MAGA outlets, it's just your eyes glaze over because they're just simply aimed at true believers, right? If people on the right want to be effective, they develop news outlets that would develop a readership of people who aren't already MAGA true believers, right? They develop a readership of non-MAGA Republicans, of centrists, and even leftists. If you have good, solid information, right? if you have valuable information, people will beat a path to your door, but the right is too lazy and too inept to develop you know, solid right-wing news sources. This demands is both unlawful and without precedent in American history. The subpoena claims to be investigating, quote, any claim that the vice president and or president of the Senate had the authority to reject or choose not to count presidential electors. Now, keep in mind that any claim you make as an American citizen about electors, any claim you make about American politics, period, is protected explicitly under the First Amendment. That's our core freedom. It's Okay, just because you have a right that's protected doesn't mean that it's a good thing, right? You have the right to commit adultery. That doesn't make it a good thing. You have the right to be sexually promiscuous. That doesn't make it a good thing. You have the right to gossip about people, but that doesn't make it a good thing. There are all sorts of things that we have rights to that uh, the, the exercise thereof is immoral. So this this right-wing fascination with you know our freedoms our rights don't don't tread on our rights right it needs to be counterbalanced by responsibilities right we we also have responsibilities to other people it's not just all about us as individuals trying to strive for you know all we can get i mean let's talk about moral injury right let's talk about moral psychology Let's let's talk about Dr. John and M. Doris, philosopher. When it goes wrong, and at times I've thought about um, a little bit about um, how um, um, the pathogen and crimes of war. So I'll talk a little bit about that today, but try and put it in a wider context. So I've got three research questions: How much does character matter for morality? Um, my answer is going to be maybe not as much as you might think. Can character be cultivated? Maybe a little. Are there alternatives to cultivating character for improving moral behavior? And the answer is, I hope so, and yes. Okay. Um, so how much does character matter for morality? Again, um, especially under the influence of Nancy Sherman people, philosophers have started to think about that in, in, in a military context. Um, there are individual differences amongst people, which we talk about in um, um, terms of personality, character, traits. Uh, um, I'm, I'm more timid. Someone else is more bold or extroverted. Um, but... These traits are not usually robust, issuing in behavior that is highly consistent. Um, so uh, m maybe I'm... Right, so the the school of uh, personality psychology is, is enormous. And I was hearing someone, Vanessa Van Edwards, talk about how this is the one scientific basis for studying personality. It, it's scientific. It's based on people just bubbling in answers. Right, self-reported answers. So uh, the big five personality traits, they're, they're not scientific. 
All right. There's not this whole body of science behind big five, you know, personality traits, meaning openness, conscientiousness, uh, neuroticism, extroversion, agreeableness. All right. This is a whole school of psychology that is based upon very flimsy foundations. But his point that that moral education and character education doesn't make much of a statistical difference to how people behave is a very solid and very important point. The number one determinant of how we behave, the number one determinant of whether we're extroverted or introverted, whether we're conscientious or not, whether we're agreeable or not, in many cases, depends upon the situation that we're in. Right. You put me in a situation where I'm confident, I will be extroverted. And I'll probably be more conscientious. And I'll have uh, substantial levels of agreeableness. I'll have low levels of neuroticism and you know, moderate levels of openness to new experience. You put me into situations where I'm insecure, I'm going to have high levels of neuroticism. I'm going to have lower levels of openness. I'm going to have lower levels of extroversion. I'm going to have lower levels of conscientiousness. You're ex more extroverted than me, but it doesn't mean we can always count on you to be the life of the party. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so I, I want to put this in a context, start with an observation. Um, and that's just that atrocity is a persistent feature of armed conflict. It, it, um, one example is this book by Jonathan Glover called Humanity, which actually turns out to be a chronicle of horror. I mean, not really much, so it might have been called Inhumanity. Um, and then if you're somebody like me and my colleague Dominic Murphy who's worked on this, you say character is insufficient bulwark against atrocity. The, the fact that someone is a good person is not going to be a sufficient prophylactic against aberrant behavior in the wrong circumstances. Maybe more interesting, recently there's been some um, um, <clears throat> work by Martin Cook, who's probably known to some of you, um, about the recent unfortunately named procurement scandal, and you find the same thing, not just with horrors of war, but sort of more ordinary or banal misconduct. Um, this isn't because, um, so, 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 so I sort of um, <clears throat> started my career as what we call a character skeptic and was dubious that virtue ethics was going to be um, a big help in our, in our thinking about hard moral problems. But in fact, we don't really need to have that fight here. What I'm going to claim is there's just a general fact about human psychology that sets an upper limit on what we can expect from character, right? It's not that, um, it's not that character matters less than you might think, but everything matters less than you might think, okay? Um, and with, I, I told you I study failure, and not, not just because it's good to write about what you know. Um, um, okay, so here's the, here's the bit about numbers which I'll try and keep simple. In fact, I'll necessarily keep it simple because I don't understand it in more than a simplistic way. But 50 years ago, a very smart personality psychologist deceased this fall, Walter Michel, he noticed that what he called the personality coefficient um, seemed to hover around 0.3 or substantially below. And the idea is any, say I test out an extroversion with extroversion um, as an extrovert, let's put it that way, then the correlation with extrovert relevant behavior and test situations, am I going to be the one with the lampshade on my head at the party, the correlation 0.3 or less, that's closer to no relationship, no relationship at all. Right, so so-called expert, uh, extroverts, all right, the correlation with extroverted behavior 
is less than 0.5, right? Meaning that that's closer to no correlation between the so-called extrovert and them acting in an extroverted fashion than there is to a correlation. So this is John M. Doris, a philosopher, and he's the author of a terrific book, influential, powerful book from 2005, Lack of Character, Personality, and Moral Behavior. All right. A perfect relationship. Perfect relationship, something like being a human and being mortal. Okay. Everybody agrees on this number. Everybody agrees on this number. Okay. The defenders of personality and character, the critics, not in doubt. The question is, what does it mean? Okay, so the way psychologists think about this in the rough and ready is do this guy, Jacob Cohen, who wrote this page Turner statistical power analysis for the behavioral sciences. That's not my book. I'll go. That's not my book recommendation. I mean, he said point one is a small effect. And uh, chat says this guy's autistic. He's not autistic. He's funny. People who crack jokes are not autistic. Right. This guy, this guy's the king. Right? He's the king of moral philosophy. So listen and learn. Point 0.3 is a medium effect and a correlation of 0.5, a covariation of 0.5. That's not a, we're missing a point there. You can tell I'm an amateur. Um, um, is a large. Here's the way to think about it. So he said, a correlation of 0.15 is invisible to casual observation. Say there's a guy at your coffee shop who really shouldn't be wearing skinny jeans, and he's there a lot when you're there, you start to notice. Well, if the correlation is 0.3, you're like, that guy's there a lot. If it's 0.15, there's actually a relationship, right? Not called a relationship, but there's a relationship, but you couldn't see it without statistical magnification, okay? So it's not hit you over the head. If you like, because it got mentioned before, <clears throat> this is perceptible, but it's not destiny. This is barely perceptible. So it's real, but it's far from- So 0.3, oh, perceptible powerful. to the naked eye of okay. a sensitive observer. Um, <clears throat> It turns out, and why I said I was going to make this kind of general point, um, life is small in a certain sense. So this famous paper by Meyer, he said, yeah, correlations in psychology are small, but they're small everywhere. Okay? So correlation between antihistamine use and reduced respiratory symptoms, 0.11, again, kind of invisible. Um, he said, psychologists should be satisfied with that, pleased with a correlation of 0.26 gender and weight. Who knew? Right? You would have thought the relationship was stronger, right? Even gender and arm strength is around 0.5. Wow. So never mind fancy psychological I would have thought it'd be more. Right. Um, the world is made of small effects. Medical effects tend to be really small. This is an interesting case, aspirin, which they've now, re they've now rescinded the recommendation, right, unless you are RP. And the chat says character changes how you react to situations, and that's absolutely true. I would contend to you, however, that in most situations, situation influences your quote-unquote moral character much more than your character influences how you behave in a situation. Um, because the, 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 there's a slight benefit, but there's a risk of uh, um, gastric bleeds and so on. So not worth it for most of us. Um, now you might say, well, that just shows that medicine is a mess. Everybody knew that, right? Right. It, 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 progress has been a little bit slow since the invention of soap. Right, um, but the, but so so probably a pr pretty big effect. That's so so you want so, Doctor Snow said, put your head in the lion's mouth. I say, wash your hands. Okay, <laughs> think thinking small here. All right, okay. So one more way to think about this that maybe will be helpful. Um, the way you, the way you get taught in intro psych, if you've had intro psych, um, how do you think about a correlation? Think about it in terms of what's called the coefficient of vari determination. You just square it, and then the idea is turn it into a percent. And that means a correlation.
Uh, question in the chat. How would this go over in the jogger community? This guy is huge in the jogger community. I mean, I can't overstate this man's influence in the jogger community. Relation to point three, if you know that, you've explained um, like 10% in the difference in outcome um, and 90% you don't know why it happened. Okay, so, so yeah, you don't know so much. <clears throat> Some people have come along and suggested <clears throat> The binomial effect size display, I won't do the math, it's actually simple, uh, um, um, even I can do it. Um, um, but you just compare a non-correlation to a 50-50 base rate of, um, for an A, B, or dichotomous choice. And it turns out if, if the relationship, say, between a medical intervention and getting better is a 0.3 correlation, that's 15% over a coin flip outcome. Okay, okay. So you definitely want to do this, right? You got a 15% chance, better chance of beating cancer, you want to do it, right? But it's not, it's not the whole shebang. Far from it. Far from it. Okay? So I want to suggest that. So press one in the chat if you've gotten the latest COVID booster, and press two if you've already gotten your flu shot. So I haven't had either of those yet. But uh, I'm reading articles on, you know, when should I get the flu shot? Uh, one, one argument was uh, middle of October, because once you get the flu shot, the, the protection that the flu shot gives declines about 10% a month. And so other people say get the new booster right away, particularly if you're in a high-risk group. But if you're not in a high-risk group, then uh, maybe wait a while. That's the kind of expectation you should have for thinking about the kind of variables we refer to when we refer to character. Why? Nothing bad about character. It just turns out that's how the universe is put together. Okay? <clears throat> so character matters, but short of destiny. But better than the coin flip. So I guess that's something. So here's how we've, Jenna Whistler said before, the most complex thing on the battlefield is... I mean, character matters, but so does whether you're running on time or not. I noticed that when I'm running late, I become much less empathic. I become much ruder. Uh, I, I just kind of narrow my vision so that I can, you know, meet meet my my schedule. So the situation of running late just has a profound effect on my moral character. I become a kind of a mean, even nasty guy when I'm running late. And I, I need to ask you, what do you do when you're walking down the sidewalk and there's someone, let's say, a fatty, just takes up the entire sidewalk so it used to be that i would just like walk around them i would even like walk onto the street to you know get around the big fat person or someone's got his dog on the sidewalk and they are you know blocking your your path should do you like oh go around you cross over to the other side of the street maybe even walk in the street or do you walk on the grass to get around them since i've been doing more push-ups and pull-ups I've been saying, excuse me, excuse me. So, yeah, I, I'm walking down the street and there's a big fatty in front of me or someone who's not fat but just taking up the entire sidewalk or someone with a dog, you know, running around on a leash that, that could trip me up or right, do me harm. I'm saying more and more, excuse me. And so far, everyone goes, oh, and, and then they, they step aside and then I walk down the path. Like, why should I be taking myself out onto the street for these antisocial people who take up the entire sidewalk, 
who just let their dogs run around even on a leash without any consideration for the welfare and well-being of of other people like why should i have to keep you know, deviating for these antisocial people who are blocking a public thoroughfare. I say it's time that we stand up. I say I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to let anybody rip me off. How long are we going to allow these antisocial people to just take up space on the sidewalks that are public thoroughfares, that our taxpaying dollars go to support these public thoroughfares, and these inconsiderate antisocial people with their dogs, with their you know, obliviousness with their, you know, addiction to their iPhones, just like standing there, taking up all the space so that God-fearing, law-abiding, productive citizens such as myself, people with a mission such as vouch nationalism, right, people who are dedicated to doing God's service, right, we, are we really going to deviate because of these antisocial people, you know, blocking public thoroughfares? Are we going to start speaking up and not letting these people rip us off maybe we should speak up and not allow these people to block our way through public thoroughfares i think it's it's time that we speak up and i find saying excuse me right i find that uh, so far that always works you say excuse me and everyone looks around as though they did something wrong and then they step back and they allow me to pass so that I can continue uh, uh, my godly duties. Right? I mean, why should I have to risk my life and limb going into the streets because these inconsiderate people just take up all this space on public thoroughfares? And then people who own dogs and the dogs are yapping? Like, what if I'm trying to study Torah? What if I'm trying to make my way through a complicated piece of Gomorrah? What if I'm trying to master the big book? You know, what if I'm work, working on the finest books in, in the English literature tradition? What if I'm reading Dostoevsky and there's this annoying yapping dog? Like, what about us, right? Taxpaying, God-fearing, humble, but proud Americans. You know, what about us? Are we just going to allow people to keep ripping us off? Or are we going to start lifting and saying, excuse me, excuse me, right? I'm on a mission to do God's will. Excuse me. This is the person, right? Right. Um, and so I think this is just what we should expect. There are many factors implicated in complex psychological outcomes, but relatively seldom are individual factors implicated, especially strongly with large effect sizes. It would say in psychology, all prediction is small prediction. This means there's few simple problems about things that matter, and there's fewer simple solutions. Okay, so now moving on, you say, okay, that's what basically how things are. What people are like matters for what they do, but kind of surprisingly little. If you just predict that they'll do what most people do in that situation, you'll do quite well. That's called betting the base rate. But maybe we can cultivate virtue and train it up. Um, so um, let's take a look at some of the things we should know if we're going to think about that. So... Um, <clears throat> You've probably heard of the Minnesota twin studies, but in behavioral genetics, it's a truism, truism that half of the variance in personality is attributed to genetic influence with very little attributed to shared environment, like family. Okay, very little. Now, um, that something is innate doesn't mean you can't act on it. You know, teeth, you can pull teeth, right? So it doesn't mean but it's, that you can't act on it, that it's not intervenable, but it does suggest that there are... Um, that there are um, <clears throat> 
from the shop differences that are going to be hard to change and are going to be constraints on any kind of character cultivation program you do. So you need to pick the right personnel to intervene on. <clears throat> what about parents, which is the obvious place, um, um, that, that, that we, as parents think, well, we'd like to raise our children to be good. I don't care if you're a, 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 um, a doctor or a lawyer. I just want you to be a decent person. It turns out that parents, it's the same as it, I suggested it was for character. Parents probably matter, but surprisingly little. So um, here's, a, here's a famous quote. Um, yeah, it, it, it means that you don't have to drive your kid back and forth to soccer practice and violin lesson three hours a day. They'll be fine. Have a drink. Um, okay. <laughs> Right, so the environmental variables most often named in socialization science, such as social class, parental warmth, one versus two parent households, may be devoid of causal influence on such child outcomes as intelligence, personality, and psychopathology. So this is a, a terrific book called The Nurture Assumption. Okay, okay. So here's a characterization of this literature. The environmental variables most often named in socialization science, social class, parental warmth, one versus two parent households, may be devoid of causal influence on such outcomes as intelligence, personality, and psychopathology. Notice these claims are not are limited to what they call normal environments, which is they're not talking about abusive homes. They're not saying abuse doesn't matter. Um, okay. Um, so that's why people can write books, Do Parents Matter? Right, right. So I'm not saying it's not true. I'm saying it's an actual credible scientific thesis that you need to think about. Um, well, what about schools? Same kind of story, same kind of story. So the character education movement is now 30 or 40 years old. Um, there wasn't a lot of study. Right. So there's no evidence that uh, character education makes that much of a difference. It's very, it's so small, it verges on non-existent. In the beginning, in the beginning, there was a lot of spending without a lot of study, okay? Um, and it looks like it's the same thing. Character education may increase academic performance, decreasing negative behaviors, which for our purposes, act, kids acting better. Um, it's a significant effect, but not huge. Same thing. Now, around here, you're coming in later in the game, right? If you're thinking that we're thinking about how in a context like this, we can educate for character with young adults. And so one model that's appealing that Dr. Snow already talked about is that notion that virtue is a skill. So here's Julie Annis, who was already mentioned. The acquisition of exercise and virtue can be seen to be in many ways like the acquisition and exercise of more mundane activities, such as farming, building, or playing the piano. Here's your colleague, Dan Russell. The cognitive and effective barriers to acquiring a virtue are no different from the barriers to learning a complex skill. Barriers that we can apparently learn to recognize and overcome, albeit with much focused effort. So this is particularly important to me because when I was sick with chronic fatigue syndrome and I was listening to Dennis Prager on the radio, I saw you know a way out for, for my life. I saw a path back to God, to transcendence, to to an interesting uh, way of life that seemed to be, you know, divinely inspired. And I thought, wow, Dennis Prague is right. There is nothing more important than morally educating people. But we simply have no evidence that morally educating people makes much of a difference. Now, my own biases, and I don't know what the evidence for this is, that if you can encourage people to become more securely attached, right, encourage people to develop ties with, with other people, to bond with other people, right, to live a life that is interconnected with others, that will have a salutary effect on their morality. But 
in my 20s listening to Dennis Prager, I thought, oh, wow, you know, ethical monotheism is, is where it's at. There's one God, his primary demand is, is ethics. And I thought this is the most important teaching. This is the most important thing in the world. But it turned out to be the most important thing for Dennis Prager because that was his claim to fame. This was, you know, very lucrative and prestigious you know, line of thought for him to base his career on. And that there was you know, no evidence for what he was arguing was irrelevant. He was on a very good wicket, all right? He, you know, he had something that made him feel important. He had a great you know, ladder to fame and fortune and to prestige, and that there was no evidence you know, supporting this ladder you know, didn't, didn't really matter. But uh, it certainly was an inspiring vision that captured me in, in my 20s, led to my conversion to Judaism. And so now at age 56, you know, I, I look back and you know, think how, how naive I was that uh, like many a young person with a desperate need for meaning, remember people who have a desperate need for meaning, that primarily indicates that they lack normal levels of human connection. If you have if you have good friends, right, you'll find your meaning in life, almost all the meaning you need from your friendships, from your family, from your work, from your education, and from your hobbies. But if you don't have that normal level of human connection, which I didn't when I was so isolated by my illness, then I became desperate for meaning. And like many young people, you know, I latched onto one path, you know, Dennis Prager's articulation of ethical monotheism, you know, followed it to an absurd degree. You know, just arbitrarily, you know, seized on this because it resonated with me because, you know, Dennis Prager kind of met my, my father hunger. Like he, he was like the ultimate father figure. And I, I was lucky that, that Dennis Prager compared to everyone who I could have, you know, followed and uh, cast in a heroic role. You know, Dennis Prager is a fairly sensible, uh, middle of the road, you know, reasonable, pretty decent chap. You know, if you're going to, if you're going to have a hero that that's going to transform your life, you know, Dennis Prager is a, is a good choice. But I, I seized on some things he said that just sounded so good and turned out that there wasn't uh, much evidence for it. Fox News cracks me up, says up there, all the text on the screen says, what we are witnessing is terrifying. And Art Bell says, we were doomed from the 1960s, mates, with the Immigration Act and Civil Rights. Women vote left, so it locks in gimme stuff and make others pay the easy choice. Luke may learn to love Sharia in time. Another conversion? Make up your mind. Did I meet anyone in Scientology? 40. Yeah, I once went to one of those Scientology places where you could do a test and they tried to talk to me about the evils of psychiatric medication. I was on Nardil at the time. I was new in LA and I was trying a lot of things. It was 1994. And I thought, oh, let me, let me just step into this uh, Scientology booth. But uh, I, you know, didn't, didn't agree with their pre prescribing uh, proscribing, the opposite of prescribing, proscribing Nardil, which a medication, an MAO inhibitor that had you know, raised me from the sickbed to, to a normal life. So I wasn't going to mess around with that. So I stream in something like, you know, 1260, but I, I see it comes across on YouTube as 480. So yeah, I, maybe I stream in 1080. So, yeah, maybe I'm not a convert to save energy. Think of the Ukrainians 40 without uh, their charged up cell phones. So, are you digging Jot M. Doris? Isn't he great?
I mean, this guy would make a great father figure. So we can get good at playing the piano. Does he Maybe appeal we can get to your good good. father okay. hunger? Does and then you'd like to know how. need for a father figure? So there's a large literature in performance science. The most famous theory is Erickson's deliberate practice theory, um, which he persisted wildly overstating. Um, here, here's a representative quote from his group, not from him. High-level performance is a function of a very high investment in deliberate practice alone. Okay? You've heard of the 10,000-hour rule, um, which is um, <clears throat> 10 years at 20 hours a week. Okay? That's stupid. Absolutely not think that practice is going to be enough, which most of us who have tried and failed at um, skills that we'd like to get good at knew already intuitively. Um, so if it's not just practice, what is it? And what turns out to happen... Um, Okay, expertise is domain limited. So, so is morality. All right, you may be honest in business. That doesn't mean you're going to be honest in your sex life, right? So, morality is domain specific. In certain areas, you're going to be honest. Other areas, you're going to be dishonest. Certain areas of life, you're going to be confident. Other areas, you're going to be lacking in confidence. There's a little more secure after LeBron's dismal season. Um, um, but he, 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 he washed out of the minors with a 206 batting average about um, in double A. Michael Jordan. Um, um, so think about medical specialties. Think about medical specialties, right? You don't, um, you don't have your dermatologist excise your brain tumor because your neurologist is booked, right? Okay. Um, and it might be a deep fact, not just that we... Right. So when it comes to personality and moral character, it's domain specific. So I would suspect that most accountants are honest when it comes to their job, but they're not necessarily any more honest with regard to their relationships. So let's say you're a professional athlete. You may be brave with regard to, you know, a hundred mile an hour baseball being thrown at you. But when it comes to dealing with women, you may well be as cowardly as the next guy. And you may be outgoing in domains where you are strong and confident and have a long track record of success, but you start participating in areas of life where you struggle, your you know extroversion is going to get turned down considerably. So morality, very much domain specific. What, the things we can go, get good at are going to be pretty local, but the same thing is going to hold for moral domains. The compassionate person might not be the fairest person. The brave person might not be the most prudent person. I know there's controversy about this. We heard about the unity of virtues um, last time. But the, the, the problem with the unit, unity of virtues is just this kind of plain observation about right that different kinds of moral goodness don't seem to go together. So that means if you are looking to train someone up and wondering what it would be like to cultivate virtue, you're probably going to be better served by thinking about what the very specific attributes conduce in different domains are. Which I think is probably, this is probably implicit in military context too, just like medical context, right? Um, um, there's lots of ways to be good. <clears throat> okay, are there alternatives to cultivating character um, for improving moral behavior? So I, 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 I meant to give a slightly pessimistic message there that maybe, maybe we can say some things about cultivating character, but we're not there yet. So we might want to think of what other things we could think about. Okay. Um, and so I think um, this is, <laughs> um, both of this morning's speakers, I guess, have found a lot to disagree with, but I think that there's a common theme, and this will be at the lunchtime. Yeah. Diminish focus on the individual, encourage focus on the situation. How do we create situations that encourage human flourishing, right?
moral probity, right? Decency is not an individual achievement. It's a social one. And it's enabled by well-informed and ordered institutions. Speaker, too, when Jessica talks that... So, for example, if you've got a, a tax code that encourages cheating, then you'll have more cheating. But if you have a tax code that uh, does not encourage cheating, then you'll have less cheating. Um, moral probity is not an individual achievement, but a social one, right? We're ultra-social organism. We should expect it to be the case that what we do well, we do well together. Of course, what we do badly, um, we do badly together, too. Okay, okay. So what we should be thinking about is what the institutions should look like that are going to conduce to the best behavior and, say, um, inoculate against combat atrocities. Um, unfortunately, in the public discourse, it seems to me that um, we badly underemphasize the importance of the social. So this is the, the House of Representatives report on Milai, um, right, right, um, probably most famous uh, um, um, war crime commission. So isn't this very similar to much of academic analysis, that, which tends to come from the left, that it's institutions that, that matter most, it's social structures that uh, matter most. So conservatives place more emphasis on individual free will. And the this uh, left-wing academic critique is saying that uh, individual free will is a very slender and frail read on which to base decency. What you need are strong institutions. By American forces, um, that it was so wrong and so foreign to the normal character and actions of our military forces as to immediately raise a question as to the legal sanity at the time of those men involved. Fast forward to um, 2004 in Abu Ghraib, President Bush, they don't represent America, they represent the actions of a few people. And so I think that if you focus on these kinds of individualizing explanations, you're likely to be badly misled about what's going on. Um, in fact, what we know is that um, individual behavior is very much a, a function of warfighting culture, say, in combat. So here's um, um, some very famous reporting by Solon Weiss about Tiger Force, a special operations group in Vietnam. Um, um, who had, to put it politely, um, had some very unsavory practices. I knew it was wrong, but it was an acceptable practice. I didn't feel right about it, but I thought I was doing my job when I did it. Um, to, it was to me like any other day in Vietnam. So what I want to um, <clears throat> insist is that um, if you start thinking about bad apples, you'll miss the point. And, what, and we know what we needed to think about in this case. We needed to think about um, um, lack of bright line combatant, non-combatant distinctions, or racialized conflicts where success was measured in terms of body counts, institutional factors, not individual factors. Um, and in fact, I think the best writing on this stuff um, um, suggests that the presence of aberrant individuals is generally unnecessary to explain atrocity and other misconduct. Occasional psychopaths noted, right? Although right, so war crimes and you know horrible be horrible behavior isn't uh, primarily the result of aberrant individuals. It's largely the result of aberrant situations. And if you want to stay out of committing war crimes, you know, stay out of those aberrant situations. Psychopaths have other properties that probably tend to present to be weeded out of organizational um, context because it's not just that they're unpleasant, but they just in general don't play well with others. Right, so they're not going to succeed in these kinds of contexts. Okay, okay. By the way, this is um, William Calley, who after his brush with the law, he came back, that's him leaving his father-in-law's jewelry store where he went on with his life as a perfect... So he committed the My Lai massacre in Vietnam. Okay. William Calley. Um, so now, I think, so I said I was interested in failure. 
and so I talked a little bit about moral failure in military context, but again, I want to suggest that it's an instance of a particular kind of observation that understands failure in terms of systems. So Diane Vaughan's very good book on the Challenger disaster. She says, in 1992, after six years analyzing the history of launch decision-making in the years before the Challenger launch, I had found no evidence of rule violation and misconduct. Right, so people in general, the general public, Americans, they want to find the individuals who screwed up the Challenger launch. They want to find the individuals who are responsible for the Challenger disaster. I mean, that's the, the general human tendency, general American tendency, like which individuals screwed up. But much of the time, it's not, you know, an individual. It's a system that hasn't been working particularly well. So six years analyzing the history of launch decisions made before the Challenger launch, and the author found no evidence of rule violation and conduct by individuals behind the Challenger disaster. What was behind the Challenger disaster was a systemic problem. By individuals, right? It was a series of collaborative decisions, which were individually not terrible decisions, but there was a, a cumulative drift, lowering, lo, 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 lowering standards for acceptable test results and so on and so forth. The same thing is true, um, um, although I'm more ambivalent about this, is probably the BP disaster where people weren't, um, people weren't successfully prosecuted. Has anyone seen the movie? Pretty good movie, right? Even the, the, the real-life analog of the slimy John Malkovich character, even he did not get prosecuted. And it becomes very in, unclear who was guilty, right? What individuals made mistakes. They're kind of a bunch of semi-reasonable decisions or seemed so at the time. Um, now, so where should we look? BP still has four platforms in the Gulf. Okay, so, so one question is, what would you have to do to lose your license? Um, but that's not, that's, not this, that's not this talk. Two of the platforms are named Mad Dog and Thunder Horse. Okay, so imagine the sign, safety first on the Mad Dog platform. Okay, so I want to say there's a labeling effect here that matters, that manifests a salt culture that doesn't emphasize safety. And it's not, of course, it's not, it's not the, um, the guy who said, yeah, Mad Dog. That's a good name for an oil platform, but that that's part of a system um, which values a certain kind of or instantiates or enables a certain kind of risky behavior, right? So again, we can explain moral failure without having to posit individuals of bad character. So what should we do? Oh, oh okay, so, I, so just, just to now go back from the corporate context um, to the military context, so this is the Peers Commission report on Milai. Barker was the, um, I guess, battalion commander, I guess, um, um, above Medina, who was above Cali, um, he says, Lieutenant Colonel Barker's minimal or non-existent instructions concerning the handling of non-combatants created the potential for grave misunderstandings to his intention and for the interpretation of his orders as authority to fire without restriction on all persons found in the target area. Okay. Um, and uh, towards the end, one of his suggestions for uh, creating a more moral society is to increase the stigma against hate speech. Uh, the use of ethnic, racial, and religious slurs. He, he's saying that uh, the use of this kind of language uh, dehumanizes other people, encourages dehumanization of the other. And so that's why we need to keep very strong stigma against the, the use of slurs, which is not something that I wanted to hear, but uh, have to have to pray on that. All right, so... Take up your God-given constitutional all-American right to walk down public thoroughfares. If there are inconsiderate people blocking you, say aloud, excuse me, and don't let anyone rip you off. Bye-bye.